Back in December of 2019, on episode 76, I shared my first ever experience reading a book from Lisey Harrison's The Click series. We started, of course, with book one. And today, my journey with The Click continues, this time with a conversation about book two, which is called Best Friends for Never. Best Friends for Never was published in October of 2004. It follows Queen Bee Massey and Wannabe Claire through a pretend friendship pact meant to trick their parents into giving them cell phones and parties, their first big co-ed bash, countless spats with the other members of the Pretty Committee, also known as the PC, some major dress code drama, and the looming specter of school uniforms. On this episode, we talk about all of it, with special attention to the way the tweens in this book portray confidence, the wealth porn we see in the series as a whole, anxiety around sex and gender dynamics, the policing of young female bodies, the evolution of conversations about plastic surgery, and the icky feelings we get from Best Friends Forever about, well, friendship. We also dive into reading as a form of rebellion, which is one of my favorite topics to discuss on the podcast. It is such a treat to share the mic on today's episode with Franny and Sophie, who host the Girls Like Us podcast. These two have definitely been added to my list of podcasting soulmates. Girls Like Us is a podcast about the click and other YA books. Hosted by Chicago writers slash comedians slash girls, Franny Comstock and Sophie Kruger, each week, Girls Like Us dives into a facet of YA fiction. Walking the fine line between comedy and analysis, Girls Like Us asks the question, what does a literature degree get you? And answers it with a podcast about books for teen girls. Expect guests aplenty, ranging from comedians to authors and everything in between. You can find Girls Like Us on your podcatcher of choice and follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Girls Like Us Show. Follow SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSR Pod and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. We have been having a ton of fun in the SSR Book Club this month, and you can join us for free at www.ssrpodcast.com slash SSR Book Club or by clicking the link in SSR's Instagram bio. If you would like to show a little extra support for SSR, there are a few things you can do. Leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts, share the pod with the book lovers in your life, or shop for SSR bookmarks, stickers, tote bags, and t-shirts at www.ssrpodcast.com shop. You can also join our Patreon community. As a Patreon member, you will contribute just a few dollars every month to the production of this independent podcast in exchange for perks like newsletters, video reading recaps, Patreon parties, bonus episodes, and so, so much more. I love watching our Patreon community grow, and I am so grateful to everyone who is already part of it. Learn more and become a patron at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. This episode is brought to you by Breakfast at the Honey Creek Cafe by Jody Thomas. If you're looking for a heartwarming new read to cozy up with this spring, I think you may have just found it. Jody Thomas is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author, and Breakfast at the Honey Creek Cafe marks a new series for her. In it, you'll meet the mayor of Honey Creek, Piper Jane McKenzie, who is navigating a major scandal in her beloved hometown. She wants to run for a bigger office someday, which makes the stakes especially high. We love to see a woman in office. In Breakfast at the Honey Creek Cafe, you'll find local politics, second chance romance, a newcomer to town, and lots of surprises. If you have been digging audiobooks lately, don't forget to check out Libro FM. Libro FM has made it possible for you to support indie bookstores instead of giant corporations when you buy audiobooks. The audiobooks you can get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I can't wait to hear about the books you're listening to and loving. One housekeeping note before we get into the episode. If you're listening to this episode the week it drops, the podcast will be taking a bit of a spring break next week. But don't worry, we'll be back on May 4th with an episode dedicated to Pretty Little Liars. In the meantime, you can catch up on the 142 episodes that are currently available to you. Happy spring break! Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. 
Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Franny. Hi, Sophie. Welcome to SSR. Hey. How are you? Okay, so you're here by popular demand. No pressure. Good. I'm I'm excited. Uh, I know that fans were raving for us, <laughs> demanding death threats. Yeah, this is the first time somebody's used the word popular and Sophie and Franny in the same sentence. <laughs> it's um, it's honestly staggering. It's a big night. Here we are, like yeah. celebrating this, reveling in these requests that we've gotten for you to appear on the podcast. Seriously, though, I'm so thrilled that you're here. So thrilled to be discussing the second book in the Click series with you. This one is called Best Friends for Never, published in October of 2004. And you are somewhat like, I'm not even going to say somewhat, you are experts. I'm, I'm just going to give you that title, experts in the world of the Click. This is only the second time I've ever encountered a book from this series. The first time was for the podcast about a year and a half ago. So I am really excited for you to kind of enlighten me with your level of expertise again no pressure yeah so this is just a funny little anecdote we are experts uh of the book to an extent that the author lisey harrison herself is not uh at this point i can say that comfortably because we've talked to lisey a few times both on and offline with things relating to the podcast and there was a time recently where we were in a meeting with her and Franny and I brought up a storyline, which is our favorite storyline in the book, I think, wherein Claire, one of the main characters, becomes an actress and films a movie. And Lisey had <laughs> forgotten that she had written that. She had forgotten that that ever happened. So you, you're comfortable claiming the expert title. Because I, I will say, I've had people on the podcast before who, when I thrust that title upon them they're like oh I'm a little intimidated but it seems like like you're inhabiting it you're fine with it we're like experts in the sense that I think we really understand the spirit of the click we're <laughs> like we we have an emotional knowledge of the click now if you asked me to recall the names of which one of some of the other titles in this series I would not remember so when we started the podcast uh, we started it about like November of last year and so right when we were kind of getting stuff up and coming November of 2019 oh yeah November 2019 yeah so we kind of ran into COVID like right when we were kind of picking up the pace on on our podcast so all of the middle books in the in the click for me like in the middle of the series kind of blend together because it was just so like enmeshed with like COVID and stuff it was and you know uh obviously you haven't read the the anymore from the series but the plot points do become very very repetitive like again and again like there there is just things that pop up in in books again and again so yeah we're we're experts in in the vibe of the click yeah definitely <laughs> we're yeah. vibe experts i i will say that 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 feels true of a lot of like teen series though like yeah the storylines repeat they kind of rotate between different characters even mm -hmm. like one character gets this storyline and then three books later a different character gets a very similar storyline which I guess is sort of reminiscent of being a teenager though right like kind of yeah. the same things are happening to everybody and it's just cycling through the school yeah. population at different rates absolutely and I think especially like in a book like the click like you kind of run out of stuff too because they're in seventh grade so it's like right. you can't drive they're not gonna have sex like there's all these like dramas that are kind of inaccessible because of <laughs> because of their age and the age range that the book is meant for. Well, that's the that's the very paradox of our podcast is like we're coming in and judging with a with a fine tooth comb and with the meticulousness <laughs> of academics, a book that is ultimately for the 10 year old, the 11 year old mind. Um, and that's what, you know, is so maddening about when we got to those middle books, when we had the COVID depression, when it seemed like the world was ending to encounter this repetitiveness that was meant to st stimulate the mind of a child it's you know it's kind of our expectations were off well that part I fully understand like the term of <laughs> yeah. being like I want to criticize this or comment on it as an adult educated woman mm -hmm. and no this is about children and it's for children and that's complicated and then it kind of makes you feel like an asshole sometimes for like yeah. 
sure. being so critical. At this point in the show, I, I tend to ask guests, like, why did you pick this book to talk about on the podcast? But for you two, it's like a much bigger question because it's like, why did you pick these books collectively to talk about exhaustively on your podcast? Let's start there. So Sophie and I both had the experience. So we both grew up in in Ohio. Um, Sophie's from Columbus. I'm from Cincinnati. Her family moved to Cincinnati when she was in college. And that's when we met, like we met through mutual friend. And we were struck when we both met by kind of how similar our psyches were, uh, <laughs> especially as, as young teen girls, because we were both not popular, as Sophie said, popular and Franny and Sophie in the same sentence. And we, these books we realized just how much influence they truly had on us in terms of not only like the way that we navigated school and the way that we like internalized, I think like feelings of worth about ourselves, but even like in our writing styles and like writing interests and literature interests. So for us, both of us, this book was, I think, very, very monumental. And it was also like a book that like Sophie and I, I think we're both not like rebels per se. So like, me being rebellious for my parents was reading this book, which I don't exactly. think that they would have they would have liked. <laughs> Franny and I are products of like firmly middle class parents who, you know, are liberal and interested in the life of the mind who would have been pretty horrified would they have known that behind these kind of bright plaid covered books was just a bunch of shit basically about like indoctrinating us into like worshiping designer clothes and like wanting to have like kissable lips and shiny <laughs> hair as like 9 10 11 year olds I very much connect with that I have such clear memories of like hiding the gossip girl covers and yeah. also hiding I don't know if you read the sloppy first series no. um, by Megan McCafferty I, was that Agnes and the full frontal stogging or was that different different but like so that I think that title actually like mm -hmm. I didn't read that as a teen I didn't read that until I don't think I read it until I covered it on the podcast or if I did, it was like maybe when I was in college because yeah. I was like afraid of the title and I didn't want to buy it and have to like address it with my parents. But yeah. the sloppy firsts cover and it like there's nothing at all like racy about it. It's just like a girl in a pair of shorts and I think like a tank top or a t-shirt like laying on a couch and but you mm. can't see her head. It's just like her neck down. Ooh, very and, male gate. Oh, I see this. Yeah, yeah, I was like very, I was like, oh my gosh, my parents are going to think that this is so wild. But I too, I was like, my wildness pretty much manifested itself in the books I was reading. Yes. I, totally. I remember specifically getting in trouble and having a big fight with my mom because she found a Cosmo that I had checked out from the library. Yeah. <laughs> Not even bought. <laughs> Wait, you checked it out from the library? I forgot that we used to do things like that. I know. That. It's it's wild. And I think that's one of the things that I'm so excited to get back to kind of like post-COVID, I guess, is uh, going to the library. Because I remember I truly spent so many hours in my youth in my local library like and not not with books with magazines 100 like, that was such a big and I, I don't know if it just made me feel like adult or whatever but yeah Cosmo was one and and it was probably like a half half like horny half like curiosity thing but that that felt very very adult to me I remember like at swim meets because my parents like I said firmly middle class always had other shit going on I have two younger siblings so I would you know get dropped off at these swim meets that I was participating in I had no okay, interest Emily in swimming. from Pretty Little Liars. yeah I know right yeah <laughs> had no interest in swimming was the worst swimmer would like get in the water and freak out because I was like afraid of drowning um but you know at swim meets there's a lot of hurry up and wait you got to show up at 6 a.m but then you're sitting around with the other kids on picto chat until like you know, <laughs> 10 a.m and i have a like a crazy psycho memory of going into the bathroom with my laptop that like my parents had just let me bring to the swim meet for some reason <laughs> that's and wild just going on cosmo.com in the locker room hiding by myself <laughs> for like an hour and a half because i was like nobody can see i was like in a stall by myself horrifying <laughs> oh, no. i wish i had been at the library these are the moments we just can't ever get back. I mean, no. I do, there's something magical about them. I, I kind of wish that I'd been aware. I wish I'd kind of known, like, take a snapshot of this because you're going to look back on this and be like, this was weird, but also like kind of magical. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, we're never going to get that back. So let, <laughs> let's reorient listeners in the world of the click since mm – -hmm. I'm sure a lot of them haven't been in this world for a second. Listeners, I'll be sure to link to our previous episode about the click in the show notes for this episode if you want to 
brush up on that conversation, but we are reintroduced to the PC, the pretty committee. Mm-hmm. Really, really uh, lovely name for their <laughs> friend group, which is led by Massey, Massey Block, queen of the PC, queen of the school. And when we meet Massey at the very beginning of this second installment in the series, she is hanging out with her family and also with Claire's family because their fathers go way back and Claire is now living with her family in Massey's guest house or on their property in some sort of an arrangement. And Massey's just like not interested in her. She does not, she's not picking up what Claire is laying down. Claire is like desperate to be friends with Massey because obviously who wouldn't be? Massey is cool. And Massey has all of these friends that are equal parts horrible and fabulous. We have Dylan, we have Alicia, we have Kristen. I think I'm missing a fifth, right? Uh, Claire is the fifth. Right, Claire is the, see, that's the, that, <laughs> that mind game that just happened is exactly what Lisey Harrison wants to have happen. I'm like, is there another member? We don't know. Mm-hmm, Claire, no, is she in, is she out? We'll never know. Well, but that's the tagline for the book. The click, the only thing harder than getting in is staying in. So the boundaries, you know, you ask, are there four? Are there five? The point of know. the book is we don't know because at any given time, you know, the boundaries are blurring. And we just saw that happen in real time on this very podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Live footage of me being confused about the boundaries. Of <laughs> you heard it here first, listeners. So I wanted to start this conversation by reading the very first line of this book because I just have to share it. Here's the opening line. Massey Block hated herself for looking so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, where do you even go from there when that's the first line of your book? So she's in seventh grade. I personally never had that experience as a seventh grader. (laughs) Me neither. No, (laughs) I was actually just thinking about this today where I was watching an episode of one of Franny and I's favorite shows, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, wherein Lisa Rinna took her two teenage daughters shopping for bathing suits. And as these children, one of whom is now dating Scott Disick at like 19 years old, which that's a whole other level of, yeah. you know, horror. But she's looking at these girls in their bathing suits and being like, get a load of this, girls, because your bodies will never be better than they are now. And then and I just felt this. Unless you're me, Lisa Rinna, and you are a size zero zero for the rest of your life. Right. But I kind of had this like profound experience of loss because I was like, I never felt that way about myself mm-hmm. as a teen or a preteen. This feeling that Massey's experiencing here, that this is the yeah. best it's going to get. And I'm so beautiful. Like, I'm still waiting to hit that. I'm still waiting yeah. to peak. You know, it's it's very much the um, the 13 going on 30 thing. Of I don't, I don't think a lot of girls felt like that, but uh, of feeling very beautiful and very confident in the way they looked as like a, a 12 or 13 year old. But I feel like I was always wanting to be you know, much older. And the 13 going on 30 thing is like, yeah, like, get me there, get me a job, like, get me, you know, income to make myself look pretty. Like, I I definitely don't think that this was a universal experience. I also feel like these girls and Massey in particular, it's just very ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like my mom always used to joke when I was in middle school and high school. And I remember her like even joking about it with my aunt, like, oh, our girls, meaning me and my cousin, like, they're so much cuter than we were when we were in high school. And I think it's a function of like the trends. And obviously we always look back on the trends that we're in when we were younger and we're like, oh my gosh, why did we wear that? Why did we do our hair that way? What was up with that makeup situation? And so I think that that does happen from generation to generation. But I do think a really fascinating thing has happened. And it's probably because of social media where I just think that like, I think that, and I think there's there's a lot to be said for this, that I think younger kids, and I'm going to say kids because they're kids, are coming Mm -hmm. into their own and coming into confidence much earlier. Like I I do think that there were kids in my high school that that were confident and felt good about themselves. But I think sort of the average confidence level of your of your teenage population, I have to believe that if there was a way to study it, it would have skyrocketed over the last couple of years. I don't know. They might be better at affecting confidence. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And well, a a few things. This is something I resent heavily, which is the sort of ubiquitous access that they have to uh, makeup tutorials and like a literacy surrounding like how to make yourself look hot, how to make your photos look hotter, like ways to pose, whatever. I think they have an extreme literacy with that. I don't know necessarily, though, if they are more confident But it's like it has the appearance of such to us adults, because like if I look at like the other day, I got an Instagram notification of like a photo I posted eight years ago of like me 
uh, in Spanish class freshman year of high school, like with a Starbucks cup going like this. And so I'm making for the listener, I'm making a crazy looking double chin. And it's like, I think now that those tools are available, they just look better to us because when we compare our past selves with that, you know, we're only seeing the embarrassment, the weirdness, the weird ways we use Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, etc. I think that's probably true. And I, I think that so much of it is about performance. Mm-hmm. And you can probably speak to this, not probably, you can speak to this better than I can. But to some degree, Massey's kind of affecting some of that too. Like we see her in these moments of vulnerability. And so in that way, I do think that there's something about her that feels very 2021 to me in that like she's figured out ways to portray a certain image, to mm-hmm. affect a certain look to manipulate her clothes and her makeup and just her like general self-presentation to put out a certain image and to like make it seem like she has it all figured out and that she has it all together. And I think that that's a thing that when these books are written in the early aughts, I don't think as many kids had that sort of like a handle on that. And I think, I think to your point, Sophie, like more people now have the tools and more people now have the confidence to use those tools But I do think there's something to me that feels very like contemporary about Massey. Like Mm -hmm. she doesn't seem to have the same insecurities that I had when I was a teenager, but she's only sort of like hiding them because she's channeling like certain performances to Mm -hmm. like look a certain way. And she also like, of course, has the privilege, which we have to acknowledge to like afford all of those things. But there's something that feels like very 2020, 2021 about her to me. And I think that's that's a big part of it, too, is we always talk about on the podcast how, like, aspirational these books were, like how we would read them and be that. And then, like, I specifically remember, like, once, like, going to Sephora to look for Bumble and Bumble conditioner, because that was something they mentioned in the book. And it's like Massey Block swished her (laughs) Bumble and Bumble vanilla infused hair. And I think the money thing is a is a big part of it and the privilege thing, because, you know, now, as Sophie was saying, like, with the just breadth of resources and access to information about like making oneself look you know quote unquote better that is something that you know has let people who are not as privileged as massey you know uh like your claire types like learn how to use makeup like an influencer whatever etc and i think that was a big part of the click is because you know these girls never had to worry about like well what if i don't look good because they knew that that their money would take care of it essentially the money is the book quite right. frankly oh, yeah. if these yeah. girls weren't you know it's like we can talk about like if these girls weren't rich no one would read these books that's right. the whole point of it's the sort of wealth porn and you know even as children like that age range the 11 the 12 the 13 that is really when we are being at our like interpolated into consumers in a more adult way you know we're turning away from the toys we're not watching the nickelodeon commercials for like the hot wheels thing with the slime on it we're more interested in especially as women like how do i make my body like more presentable how do i like exist within a social sphere and like how does that intersect with uh, myself as a consumer and so that's where these books I think really dig their hands into the feeble adolescent mind because it's like it has these like social situations that mirror our middle school selves but it also is this deep like you will never have this because these girls are like insanely wealthy and they can have whatever they want yeah we, we talk a lot about how interesting it was that like we as middle class people in Ohio, which is like definitely like a privilege, like we're still like, oh my gosh, these girls have everything. And making us, you know, aspire towards like a level of wealth and consumption that, you know, is like immoral, probably like, you know, now with my adult understanding of capitalism, etc. But like, it was interesting how even though we were so, you know, privileged in our own right, like that's not something that these books made us see. I think we come from a similar frame of reference because I grew up middle class in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So yeah, similarly, I think we have sort of the same, we grew up with maybe some of the same perspectives. And for yeah. me, it was the OC was really like yeah, my born. And later, well, not I, I didn't really watch the Gossip Girl show, but I did read the Gossip Girl books. And in mm-hmm. a, a different way, that was wealth porn. Although it, for some reason, I don't think I got it. Like I didn't get yeah. how rich these people were until later on. For <laughs> me, it was really the OC. But I think I think the click does something different in that 
the OC for me, at least as somebody who like lived in the suburbs, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, my life could never be like that because I don't live at the beach. Right. And that's a girl like my life could never be like that because I don't live in a city. And while these girls in the clique live in Westchester, New York, if you're not from like the New York City area and you're 12, Westchester doesn't necessarily carry any social capital with you. No, no. We're just a bunch of girls who live in a town like yours. And so I think that this book, this series does something a little bit different Mm -hmm. in that I don't know. I, th- I think it it feels like maybe it's a little bit more attainable just because it's like a town. Like it's not a city. It's not a beach. Like yes. they are just in town. They're right. at the mall. Like they're, right. they're, yeah. And that's the thing is like, I think Lisey did a, did a good job of really like targeting like things that were kind of attainable, but obviously not in the volume that, that Massey has them. So yeah, like I said, like I could buy a Bumble and Bubble conditioner for $20, but obviously I can't like buy, like, I couldn't do that for every single makeup item I own, or I can like get a Starbucks, you know, and like they did that too. So I think that's definitely a big part of it too, is there are ways that you can feel like, Oh, I'm, I'm in with this. Well, whereas obviously like you're saying like, Oh, you can't go to the beach or you can't go to like, like a New York, like gala or something. So right. Yeah. Also, I was, I was thinking about what you said about like how you didn't really grasp the richness of Gossip Girl. And I think that's funny because probably I haven't read the books, but I'm in the show. I know they all like are in apartments, which we as adults know are, it's very expensive to like own an apartment in New York. But as a kid, you're like, what? Like, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, it's just, it's just a weird thing to wrap your head around if you don't have like the context for it. So let's talk a little bit about like where Massey and Claire stand at the beginning of Best Friends Forever. Great title, by the way. Let Lisey know if you have a chance to talk to her. Let her know that this is a great title. Um, She'll be like, what? (laughs) Yeah, she'll be like, I wrote that? Um, Okay. She'll be like, the click? The the click? What? She'll be like, oh yeah, that's what was on my residual check last month. (laughs) That's crazy. What a coincidence. Must be nice, Lacey. Um, Okay, so Massey and Claire are really just trying to trick their parents, as seventh graders often do. It's really important to their moms that they like each other, that Mm -hmm. they be friends. And as I get older, I get this more. I think like I'm married. I've been in a relationship for a really long time. My husband has had these friends for a really long time. We don't have kids, but I can imagine that like someday it would be like really important to me for like our kids to be friends with each Mm -hmm. other. It's really important for me to like build relationships with his friends, partners. Like I get that. And I think when I was a kid, I would have been like, oh, this is such a drag. And Mm -hmm. I, I would never like want anybody in my family to feel like I was forcing them to be friends with anybody. But I don't know. I get it. I'm like, you just want harmony. Like it's just easier if everybody gets along. Exactly. Because they're living together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, something that is like, well, I have a question to pose. So they're trying to trick their parents, right? And, And for the listener, it's, Uh, Massey wants to throw a boy-girl Halloween party. Claire wants a cell phone. They think, well, if we pretend to be friends, like our parents will give this to us. To what extent do you guys think that the the parents were kind of tricked into this? Or were they just like, well, even if they pretend to be friends, maybe they'll get to know each other better and then they'll like each other. Well, here's the thing. We don't have any evidence that Claire or Massey's parents like have any redeemable qualities or like, like cognitive thinking abilities like these people are very much and Alicia has cop to this the parents are presented as non-entities they are like only around in the beginnings and ends of books to either initiate conflict like this or to somehow move the plot along or as like a slapsticky type joke so i would honestly say like if I, if we're talking about like in real life parents they totally know parents like as a nine ten year old you might think you are getting one over (laughs) but you almost never are in the book honestly maybe because like we've talked about this before massey's parents are definitely partying a lot so like yeah (laughs) i don't know they might not be kind of paying attention to their daughter to the capacity that most parents as like all of us would imagine are I feel as though Claire's mom might have like really believed it, but only because she really wanted to believe it. Like, yeah, I feel like, you know, we don't really know what Claire's mom's journey to like settle into this town has been like, Mm -hmm. because we don't get to see any of that. But like, as an adult who relatively recently relocated to a new city, I'm like, Claire's mom is trying to find friends too. She has these kids that she's like trying to make sure that they're comfortable in these fancy schools that they're going to. She probably would like to, like, get her own house at some point so she's not relying on her husband's friend's family. Like, 
she has a lot going on too so she's probably like okay great we gotta win like these girls are gonna be friends maybe I'm just making this assumption because Claire is so eager but like I sort of I don't know I assume that her mom is kind of eager and like earnest Mm -hmm. and just like wants to believe the best in people she just seems like a really like trusting person yeah So I think that she I think that she believes it because she wants to like when if you really want to believe something you don't really need that much evidence to yeah to prove it Massey's mom I don't really think she cares like yeah <laughs> I don't think to me like it was a stretch for me to believe that it would have been that hard for Massey to convince her parents to let her have a boy girl party like yeah it's you know I get that like parents don't necessarily want to like spend a lot of money like that maybe was the big sticking point because Massey of course wants it to be like a gala but I like don't really feel like she would have had to push that hard for yeah. them to let her throw this party because they love to party yeah so I maybe her mom believed it but like I don't know that she I don't know that it matters to her whether or not she believes it yeah I kind of wonder if and you, you're bringing up a good point here in terms of like Massey the one kind of chip we see in her exterior is she has a lot of boy anxiety mm-hmm. and this is the one thing that she like doesn't even want to like let her friends know like Alicia was like oh well when I was in Spain with my cousins we play kissed or be kissed which is basically spin the bottle and Massey's like freaked out by it but she doesn't want to let them know so I wonder if in Massey's mind she's like this is such a big deal asking to have a boy girl party oh my gosh this is the biggest deal and her parents like are like no you guys are 12 like it's okay like well there's so much so much of this book is about sort of like that the to the point where you can say this about 12 year olds but like sort of anxiety surrounding sex and gender dynamics like we see the biggest thing for me about this book like that stands out and that I even remember now having read it unfortunately three times is the fact that the girls in the pretty committee for the party want to dress as dirty devils what does their butt say what is what does the sequin on their butt say kiss it yeah, yeah. Um. It's, and it's the classic like I think we talked about this when we did our episode on this book like two years ago but it's the classic thing as a 12 year old you don't feel necessarily sexual you don't necessarily experience sexual desire in the way that we now know it and name it as adults but you want to appear sexy Mm -hmm. and so the girls you know have inez the block family's housekeeper which that's a whole other conversation (laughs) about that dynamic they have her sew them these dirty devil costumes which are these revealing little like just what they sound like dirty devil costumes Mm -hmm. and they wear them to school which then causes a big issue that then prompts like the second or third major conflict of the book which is that the principal is gonna force them to do uniforms which that this book goes on for way too long yeah we we talked about this like and this like you know going back to a lot of the plots blend together in the in the middle part of the click books like this book is the way that um the plots are structured is so odd to me because this book probably should have just ended after the halloween party and, but instead there's two giant set pieces it's it's very weird and and again like that's something you don't pick up on as a child you're not like this arc is odd but like yeah 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 this book is two or three books and had she written them later in the series i'm convinced it would have been as such because you know as we know she definitely ran out of material but at this point you know it's book two she's zealous she's like i can weave these two things in but it speaks to so we have this desire for the boy girl party and you know if i think about my 12 year old self i wanted to appear to you know roll in a friend group of boys and girls i didn't actually want to hang out with boys like very rarely did i want to actually hang out with boys um it was you know more of a performance and then this dirty devil thing which causes something i'm sure we're all familiar with which is like panic at school regarding girls bodies and the capacity to which they show them yeah, the dirty devil costume situation causes a flurry of activity, to say the least. But I'll echo what you said. The book felt very disjointed to me, just kind of mm-hmm. as like a work. And I, I think that for me, like the Halloween party, it was like so confusing to me. And I feel like she could have made that whole thing longer, like mm-hmm. draw that out, slow that party down. Because when I was reviewing like my summary and my notes before we jumped on to talk tonight, I was like, I don't even remember what happened at the Halloween party because yeah. there's so much. 
I don't know who's flirting with who. I don't know who's mad at who. I just kind of know that everybody's mad at everybody and everybody's flirting with everybody, which is, I guess, kind of how middle school feels sometimes. But I found the second half of the book to be much more interesting Mm -hmm. and much more like thought provoking as far as like things that would have concerned me when I was in middle school. And maybe it's because I didn't have a lot of interest in going to boy girl parties when I was in middle school. I had a lot of friends that were boys, but I was not at all interested in like sort of the social currency of like a boy girl Mm -hmm. party. I don't remember that ever being a thing for me. And maybe it's because I did have friends that were boys. And so it was like, we had already been hanging out in basements as like groups of like four or five boys and four or five girls watching movies. And so I don't ever remember it being like, a conversation with my parents like oh you're going to a boy girl party that just like wasn't a thing and I feel like that was more of like a plot arc in movies and books in like the 80s and the 90s and the aughts like I I feel like it was much bigger in pop culture than it was in my life it's it's interesting because like if parents are worried about you going to a party, I don't think it's a gender-based thing. Like, especially because these girls are, like, 12, 13. Like, I would hope there's not, like, alcohol or, or drugs at these parties. But, like, my I don't think my parents would be like, yeah, like, <laughs> like yeah, you can go to the skating rink for, like, <laughs> like this boy's, like, 13th birthday party. No, like, like, where parents are definitely going to be yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm going to GameStop and purchasing Professor Layton, like, oh, the puzzle game for a child. That was a great game, by the way. Yeah, like, <laughs> where we're having a party at like a rock climbing gym or something where like the dad's gonna have to belay all 13 of us up the wall <laughs> yeah I don't know I mean like I definitely had some weird shit going on in middle school that I think I also discussed on our podcast with this episode wherein like there would just be like crazy make out like sessions happening at those basement hangs like my basement hangs were a lot less sort of innocent because like everybody was queer everybody was horny like it was all going down in those basements like once the lights went off and glee was turned on like all bets were (laughs) off but yeah I think I don't know like I remember um going to see the first Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie with um, a group of kids and parents. And there's a party thrown in that movie by the high school age brother famously named Roderick. Roderick. Yeah. I remember leaving and my mom's friend saying, oh my God, I wish my kids would throw a party like that because there was no alcohol. Like they were just like drinking two liters of Coke and like being crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I think what's like weird though is that because of the way that Massey and her and the PC, the way that they act, it's like, I feel like they are in high school. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm reading this book, I'm like, I fully expect them to be drinking. Like, yeah, yeah. These, like waitresses dressed as like vampires or whatever, because they're in this like when hell freezes over theme at the Halloween party. I'm like, yeah. I just assume because of the way that I'm reading these characters. I'm like, there's jello shots somewhere. And obviously, yeah. like, I don't <laughs> think that's the author's intention, because these are seventh graders. And I mm-hmm. think like, there are limits to how many of the limits are being pushed. By what people. I think maybe is a is a reference point that some of us might be lacking is bar and bat mitzvah culture. Yes. Uh, which is happening, you know, with kids of these ages. And I don't know about y'all, but like, I'm not Jewish, but I attended several bar and bat mitzvahs as a tween. And like, this is the level of yeah. party that it is where it's like, to anybody looking in from the outside everybody should be drinking but those martini glasses are filled with mashed potatoes that's true i definitely i remember at my friend's a bene mitzvah which is a that's a bar and bar mitzvah for twins yeah Yeah. oh shit we just blew sophie's mind that's wild (laughs) i mean that was i remember and this is going back to that girl boy anxiety there was something called a snowball dance and a snowball dance was what happened when the uh in this case the twins they both start they both had someone to start out dancing then those people broke apart and chose a different person and of course i was not chosen right like yeah it, I'm it, feeling stressed just thinking about it I know. yeah or there's the game where like you're both on different the dj is like you're like okay now we're gonna play like I don't know know what this game was called, but you both have to be on different sides of the dance floor and it, and you like run back and forth. It's all very like gender uh, divided games. But right. what's funny is like you talk about that snowball dance and it's like as a tween, you know, you're so horrified by like, what if Garrett from math like has to dance with me and he thinks I'm ugly and like he's going to tell everyone about it. As an adult, I'm like, that sounds like hell of a good time. I get to dance <laughs> with a bunch of different people and meet a bunch of people at a party where we're all like <laughs> I drinking. I get like, inflatable guitar. Yeah, I'm like, that's <laughs> like a awesome. Cube. <laughs> right. 
We're also very party deprived on uh, yeah, April 8th of 2021. I would definitely, I think I would tear it up at a bar or bat mitzvah right oh now when gosh. as a 13 year old, it was extremely socially stressful. Yeah. And I didn't know how to behave, but I do think that's a good point though. Like I remember going to several bar and bat mitzvahs that were very expensive and mm-hmm. that's, that's true. That's a good thing to compare this to. Let's move on to the conversation about uniforms because I thought yes. that, that was really interesting and my ears definitely perked up. I guess that's a weird metaphor or expression to use with reading, but that's how I'll describe it. I was like, ooh, uniforms. I think that I always think that's such an interesting conversation. Yeah. So as we sort of referred to already, um, all hell breaks loose in preparation and then after the when hell freezes over party because Massey and Claire have this bet going where if Claire doesn't repeat an outfit over a certain period of time, And if Massey doesn't buy a new piece of clothing over a certain period of time, like those are the stakes. And so whoever caves first loses and has to wear Massey's old snowsuit to school, which is hilarious. This is just like another random set piece. That's just like, I forgot about this plot line. (laughs) Right. I feel like Massey would be much meaner. Like if I were to make a bet with Massey, I would assume that she would make me do something terrible and she wouldn't even be willing to negotiate about it. So Massey is like over this bet. She's like, I can't go shopping. I have nothing new to wear. Claire's taking all of my clothes. And so she decides that she's just going to wear her dirty devil costume to school because Mm -hmm. she has to be fabulous. And in a very like mean girl-esque kind of way, we all see Massey Block wearing a dirty devil costume. So we wore a dirty devil costume and we start cutting holes in our clothes. And of course... God forbid we see a girl's skin exposed. Yeah. That's not allowed. Like everybody freaks out at school. The girls are told that they have to wear clothes from the lost and found. A girl cuts herself with a pair of scissors. (laughs) It's a sex riot. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And this is the catalyst for the school deciding that they need to have uniforms. Tell me about, like, did you have uniforms in your school? Like, do you remember having any sort of feeling about uniforms? I didn't have uniforms because I always went to, like, public schools and I always wanted uniforms because I was like, then I wouldn't have to worry about what I looked like. We, I specifically remember in my eighth grade history class, my teacher gave us all letters and he was like, the school is is going to uh, implement a uniform. So we have to do like a civil like <laughs> disobedience. And, and everyone got genuinely very, very upset about it. And then he had to be like, this was fake. Like, I just wanted to see what you guys would do. But I was always very intrigued by uniforms because, yeah, it just seemed like fun to not have to somehow that seemed more fun to me than wearing my own clothing there's a level of like social like status that's removed when you're all in the same clothes i think and that was appealing to me i wore a uniform um in high school when i transferred to a catholic school after my family moved i mean like i don't even there's nothing notable about it when you're doing in high school and i went to an all-girls high school um so it was very much like we had to wear a skirt and um a polo shirt and like a school issued sweatshirt if you wanted to wear like a sweatshirt or something if it was cold but really what it ended up in always was like pulling on sweatpants over or under the skirt and having like some the rattiest possible sweatshirt what's more intriguing to me is conversation around dress codes um in situations where students aren't wearing uniforms which pops up in this book because like like i said a sex riot is initiated uh by massey wearing the dirty devil costume to school and there's a lot of fear surrounding that there was at least in my middle school like i have a lot of sort of formative memories of seeing a teacher roll up on like an 11 year old girl and be like if your bra straps are showing that's inappropriate which is like a child that first put on a bra for yesterday you know what i mean and now is going to be affected by that for the rest of her life i remember one time i was wearing a skirt that was like deemed too short and the um like one of the guidance counselors came over and like physically yanked it down on me that that happened to to my girlfriend who did go to a school with uniforms and her skirt was too short because there's only one like length of skirt and she's tall and so that she got in in trouble for that it's it's terrible did you have the role at your did you have the like the fingertip role? yeah yeah like if yeah. you put your because i didn't have uniforms at my school but the dress code was really strict for girls i don't even yeah. know what the dress code was for boys and i think 
that in itself is really interesting that like everybody knew exactly what the expectations were for how the girls were supposed to dress. But I couldn't, I have no idea what the rules were, if there were any rules for boys. Because there weren't. They had to yeah. follow the no, same no, rules like, as girls. No, like, Cookie Monster-themed snapbacks. Like, it was, yeah. like, basically, yeah. like, you can't wear a hat that you bought at Hot Topic. That was about as strict Or as maybe, like, um, I feel like, I think I'm a couple of years older than you. And when I was in high school, and maybe still now, but I feel like when I was in high school in, like, the early aughts, the, like, really low jeans for mm-hmm. men were, like, really in. So it was a lot of, like, under, like, boxers popping right. out of the tops yeah. of jeans. I think I, I remember seeing people getting in trouble for that. But just the fact that like the the girls dress code was something that people talked about, you know, people mm-hmm. knew to be on the lookout. And Sophie, the way you described that scenario of like a girl getting in trouble for having her bra strap sticking out, like I of course knew that that's, that's a thing in dress codes. It was part of my dress code when I was in high school. We weren't even allowed to wear tank tops though. So no. like, it wasn't, you wouldn't have ever seen it a bra strap, but it is like, it is so crazy to think about like girls don't have a choice about whether or not to wear a bra. Like you have to wear a right. bra. Like yeah. even if you don't want to, like I think most, I, I hate to make generalizations here, but your mom's going to make you wear a bra. Right. Your mom's yeah. going to buy you a bra. Your mom is probably going to be like, you need to wear a bra or maybe you're going to want to wear a bra. You don't have a choice. And so but yeah. then you are scolded for having mm-hmm. it exposed even the tiniest bit for the tiniest second. And no wonder we're all so fucked up about our bodies. Yeah. This is the thing is looking back on that is like any sort of formative memories we have with any sort of adult policing our body, especially in an educational setting. It's like it blows my mind because I think about, you know, I have several friends who are teachers who like the training is extensive. You go through like they don't they don't let anybody be a teacher. And it's like, how is that not something that? 10 15 years ago whenever we were in middle school and high school how was that not something that was like discussed how were there not like things like like how you policing a child's body and projecting your adult ideas of sexuality onto their body like how is that appropriate it just it blows my mind i think now we have a better like understanding and and consciousness and i think part of the reason this is changing is specifically probably high schoolers have a better consciousness of this of yeah. that like okay well who is a dress code for is mm-hmm. it for the other boys in school because then that becomes an issue of you're blaming the girls for boys acting however or is it for like the adults which is also bad and creepy so i think i think maybe more high schoolers are being like wait a minute like this is kind of fucked up but yeah it but there was no like the thing that was so hard I think about dress codes for a lot of us is you can't really be like you can't you don't have a defense for that like your body is the problem you didn't even do anything you know quote unquote wrong your act of being is the action that is deemed wrong which is why that's so you know hurtful right I'm inhabiting my body and trying the best I can to accommodate it I mean to this day if I and I often don't wear a bra now, but mm-hmm. if I didn't have to wear a bra to go out, then I, I wouldn't. And, yeah. and I still to this day, I'm like, oh no, my bra strap is showing. If I didn't have to deal with that because I, I was worried about like fashion implications mm-hmm. or whatever, I wouldn't worry about it. It's a pain in the ass. So right. I do think like remembering what that felt like for a 12 or 13 or 14 year old kid is really like, it puts a lot of things into context. And um, I actually now I'm like very in favor of uniforms. I remember mm-hmm. there was a very short period of time when I was in elementary school, when my mom came home one day and she was like, we got a letter from the school. They're thinking about converting to uniforms. And I was, I was so upset. I mean, I was like mm-hmm. 10, so I don't know why I cared that much. But my mom was like, I think this is great. They're going to take sort of a casual approach where you're, you'll mm-hmm. get to choose like, you know, a few different outfits, but there's this catalog and, but everybody's going to be dressed the same. Mm-hmm. And I being 10, I was like, I haven't even gotten to live my life yet. Like I don't know <laughs> what I like to wear. <laughs> now I'm like, I think it's great. I think uniforms are great. Wear what you want on the weekends. I also think now it's like everybody's wearing leggings anyway. So what yeah. do you care? What do you, what do you care? I, I do think there's like, there's a sameness about the way people dress now, which is sad yeah. in some ways, but it's also like, then everybody should just wear a uniform at school. It would make life easier. And even when they try to enforce a uniform in this book, of course, it becomes a literal fashion show. Yeah. yeah exactly. And a wealth competition. Yeah. When you mentioned, Ali, uh, leggings, that was something that's interesting because I remember that being a huge debate, like leggings as pants, like that's not allowed. And like now, like, you know, albeit I was in the office alone, but I had to go into my work office today and and I'm wearing leggings as pants to that. Like, 
<laughs> that's like a very commonplace thing now. Yeah, I don't think leggings were like a thing when I was in high school. But it's interesting because I remember my, I have sisters that are significantly younger than I am. My youngest sister is 10 years younger than I am. And I remember one day I was visiting my family and they were getting ready to go to school when they were still in high school. And they all came down in leggings. And I was like, oh, that's allowed? Like not having <laughs> any judgment of them, of course, but just surprised because I was like, yeah. I don't think that that, that wouldn't have been cool when I was in high school just based on what the expectations were when I was their age. Yeah. Exactly. Which is terrible. Who cares? They're leggings. Let it go. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I do think it's interesting that like, of course, this book, even like something that is supposed to be so grounding, which is uniforms, mm-hmm. like yeah. the click manages to find a way to make it somehow more stressful, more competitive, yes. more like, I don't know, causing more drama than not wearing uniforms. Yeah. yeah. And of course, the the Team People magazine is involved with it to decide who has the best uniform idea. Of course. Well, and at this point, all of the girls are now like splintered off into mm-hmm. groups because I believe it's Alicia that's befriended Olivia. And, and God's greatest mistake. Note. Yeah. <laughs> Famously, Olivia Ryan is referred to in a, in a later book as God's greatest mistake. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like Olivia. I think she's fun. <laughs> I too. like Olivia too. And everybody's, and I do think that's another thing that would have changed now or like the perceptions have changed now because in this book, everybody's like talking shit about Olivia because she got a nose job. Yeah. And now I think, you know, whether we like it or not, getting fillers or getting all kinds mm-hmm. of things for high schoolers, at least it's not, it's, it's not as rare as it used to be. I think yeah. there's at least sort of like a comfort with the language of plastic surgery now mm-hmm. among teens and tweens because of Instagram and reality TV and all that stuff where like, in this book, these girls are totally scandalized by it. They're like, how yeah. dare she? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Not to say that I'm in favor of any of this or, <laughs> or making a judgment call about it, but I do think that like, I don't think that if this book were written today that Massey would be scandalized by it. I think Massey no. would be like, oh yeah, I got one too. I, I certainly see a lot of teens on TikTok doing before and afters of of their nose job. Yeah. For me, I'm, I'm always like, did you pay for this? Like, who paid for this? Is always That's the my... thing. It always aligns with, like, the only teenagers getting nose jobs are the obscenely wealthy because it's like, that's an elective procedure. Somebody's parent is paying, like, $10,000 for that nose job. Um, the only thing to me that's particularly jarring about Olivia's nose job is that she is, like, 11 years old mm-hmm. um so her it nose is isn't like, like done growing yet like, right i'm like yeah. how is that gonna work see i keep forgetting that they're 11 years old <laughs> I mean, that's the thing happening. yeah like again real time everyone like they behave as though they're like 14 yeah. 15 16 17 years old it's like a cognitive dissonance because they behave in a certain way yeah i don't know i sort of feel like lizzie harrison if you're listening sorry but like mm-hmm. i feel like um she sort of like sele- she aged them selectively like when it was convenient yeah. for them to be a certain age she wrote to that when it was convenient for them to be another age she wrote into that which obviously like that's necessary for plot to an extent but i don't know it's clearly messing with me when we had her on on the pod the first time like we kind of you know brought up I guess basically like critiques we've had of this book that being one of them and she was like you know she was not much older than us when she wrote this um she was probably like in in her late 20s she was working at MTV she had access to like all this types of like nightlife stuff etc so I think that and that's another reason why like the parents were not there because she she like she had no pretty much no grounded reality I think of what Mm. what teens were like so yeah I agree with you their their age definitely fluctuates and and I think part of that is because she wasn't necessarily like writing to be accurate about like the teens lifestyle it made me think of like maybe these are what she was around the teens in New York like uh you know the sex in the city episode where where Samantha has to throw a bar mitzvah I think for a for a 13 year old girl and they're like talking about blowjobs and stuff obviously not that extreme but I'm like I wonder if like that level of wealth uh for some teens is like they they try to present much older at least oh I mean like every it's famously in New York City the teens age so fast like one of my best friends from college is from new york and went to you know a new york city public high school and when we met when we were 18 as freshmen in college me coming from ohio her coming from new york city i was totally 
obsessed with her because it was like she had like done meth at like gumball <laughs> and like had like you know been in a band and like knew a bunch of like like had done a group project with madonna's daughter and like had spent all of her teens partying and like being at different people's houses and living a totally different life than i did where it was like the craziest thing i ever did in high school Watch was like smoke pot at a park <laughs> before school you know yeah and she lived a thousand lives yeah is she happy with that now, Sophie? Is that like... Well, I mean, I just, you know, yeah. not to speak on her behalf, but there is a profound sadness to growing up really quickly and to think about the environments in which kids are allowed to live a kind of fast lifestyle. You know, I think like we all have our own childhoods, but like what we see, you know, maybe as like what I as an 18 year old saw as something really glamorous was actually it had its sadnesses and its, you know, feelings of loss too. Well, I think that's very um, reflective of maybe how some of the PC will look back on their childhood. Definitely. So as the book winds down, we've had Massey and Claire collaborating on an entry for the fashion show too. And it's kind of brought them together, which, Mm -hmm. you know, predictable, could have seen it coming a mile away. (laughs) And one of the last lines of the book is this, like the right to wear a dirty devil costume, Massey's friendship wasn't something Claire was entitled to. It was something she had to earn and Mm -hmm. she had finally done it. Thoughts? (laughs) Oh my gosh. So Yeah. And I think, again, like when I read these books as a teen, I think I really internalized the idea of like transactional nature of friendships. I remember like who now looking back, like, yes, they were popular girls, quote unquote, but like they were like very weird, like just as weird as me. But in my mind, like I had I was like, well, I have to hit all these marks for them. So they allow me to be their friend. Um, It just it set me up. I think these books set me up for a very odd kind of understanding of uh, friendship with a lot of girls yeah I think I don't know like well on the one hand it's you know it's kind of like a trite little like wrapping it up in a bow the idea that you know somehow these two conflicts them being friends and like the uniform sex party thing intersect but I also think that you know, these books are pitched to us, at least in the initial book, and then it kind of gets away from this later on as will Massey ever accept Claire? Mm -hmm. And Claire, of course, is our stand in the reader as somebody who's a little bit more normal and a little bit less privileged than Massey. Yeah, um, coming into this world. And it's like, will those two things ever, you know, comfortably coexist. And so I think it's like, I mean, nobody's entitled to anybody's friendship, but it is still this kind of idea that, you know, Claire, it's not Massey trying to be friends with Claire. Massey doesn't have to try to be friends with anybody. It's Claire's Mm -hmm. responsibility to make Massey like her. And I think that feeling is relatable to us as children. I think especially, you know, growing up maybe in smaller schools, like in um, Ohio, in Pennsylvania, like places where there are only like a few groups of kids you can be friends with. It can be really alienating as a child where you feel like you have to put different personas or ideas on to make friends with people. Yeah. I think um, as I get older, I'm realizing more and more that I have a lot to unpack in terms of like the way that I approach friendships. And like, I just think that I have a lot of like shit that I'm trying to figure out about like Mm -hmm. the pressure that I feel in relationships and like, how much emotional responsibility I take on to like set the tone in my friendships. And this sounds like me being like maybe a little bit of a martyr and that's not what I mean. I just, I think we get a lot of messages from the media, from family members, from the communities that we're raised in, from the first friends that we have about like what it means to be a friend and like what Mm -hmm. is required of you and Mm -hmm. how reciprocal those relationships should be and all of those things. And I just think this is an example. And like, obviously this is, we can see as adults, this is like satirical to an extent. Like this is obviously like an extremely exaggerated environment. And these characters are like caricatures of themselves. Yeah, totally. Um, But you don't know that as a kid. And I think this is just like an example of one of the million little things that have probably contributed to me, like at 30 years old, still trying to figure out like why I get so stressed out within my friendships yeah Yeah, I mean I am like obviously I'm an adult and like what you say about unpacking these things really strikes me in this conversation because I'm someone who totally like and I brought this up on our podcast like I am always duped by the cool girl I like still you know what I mean like I have awesome friends but I am totally 
I'm totally stricken or like really susceptible to like the girl who has money, the girl who has influence, the girl who knows all the cool places to hang out and like that I see as cool, even when I know that that person like probably doesn't see me as being like a, I don't know, like a worthy friend or like a long-term friendship prospect even. And that's totally what Claire's going through. So it is relatable in that in that aspect. Yeah, it's crazy that as adults, we can still relate to these seventh graders. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that says about, about our world. But I know this question might be interesting for you to answer because you obviously have really looked at this series as a whole over a period of, of years at this point. I typically ask my guests if the book that we've discussed holds up for them on this reread. Uh Um, And I know you've read this particular installment a couple of times now. I know, again, you really have like a close eye on The Click as a franchise, as a universe. Uh So you can answer this whichever way you'd prefer, whether you want to look at just this particular book, Best Friends for Never, or if you want to kind of speak to the series as a whole. How do you think it's held up for you on subsequent rereads, on subsequent discussions and analyses? Yeah, I definitely think, and this is what we ran into, like, again, like that kind of stretch of books in the middle of the click, like they did not hold up for us as adults. And we got a lot of like, I guess, like negative feedback from some people because, you know, our podcast got more popular because of like a viral tweet about the click. Right. And like a lot of those listeners coming into it were just people who were like, I love the click. Let me hear about the click. And like, so like reading this as an adult and even this book, which is very early in the series, it's like the, the flaws of it, like just really pop out at you. And and we love Lisi and like, there are parts about the click that I love and that I loved as a, as a teen, but I think reading it now and, and seeing a lot of these like issues with it, I guess for lack of a better term, it can be more often like sad than like happy. Like it for a yeah. lot of these books, it doesn't elate me to read them because I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is reminding me of when I was 13 and like I felt so insecure and, and so sad all the time. And like, and then this book with the Dirty Devils thing, I'm like, oh, this makes me, <laughs> this also makes me sad. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean- Here's the thing. We've been, you know, now on the podcast, our main series that we're covering is Pretty Little Liars, which I look forward to reading those because they have, like we discussed off mic, that mystery element Mm -hmm. that's, you know, more stimulating than like just the regular ups and downs and dramas of these rich tweens. And these books, the thing is, I think they probably still hold up for 11, 10, 9, 12 year olds. But the, you know, if we unpack like we have today, the messages that they impart, it's like, I don't know. You could read something else. But also, there's a time and a place for things that aren't necessarily stimulating your higher intellectual self. So, like, if you're a nine-year-old, like, this is a, for a nine-year-old, the equivalency maybe of, like, scrolling through Instagram and, or, like, a, real house celebrity gossip (laughs) or something like that. Except it is a book, you know what I mean? We talk about a lot on our podcast, like, our parents were just happy that we were reading and not watching TV. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I think... Uh, would I ever read this book again? No. I hope that I never have to read this book again. This is now my second reread as an adult. But, you know, for kids, probably. Yeah, I think you're right. It's probably no better and no worse than scrolling through Instagram at this point. Mm-hmm. Other than Best Friends for Never, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, so I'm almost done with the book on everybody's lips. Uh, which is Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. I don't have to tell you to read that because I feel like every outlet has been telling you that it's fantastic. It is. And then I just got done with the pulpy book that came out of the Trump administration, the first real inside book of the Trump administration, Fire and Fury, a book I like, you know, vowed never to read because I (laughs) thought it was, you know, for like old self-important liberals but it was on the front table at the library the last time I went so I was like you know what I can crank through this and I gotta tell you if you're a fan of like gossip that book is top shelf gossip top shelf gossip check it out it's like reading a people magazine now that he's out of office I think I can handle that like I think in office I would have been like "Mm." (laughs) exactly like it feels kind of fun (laughs) in like a dark way to reminisce on the early days where like Jared and Ivanka were just going to brunch with random people all the time. Yeah. Now it's behind us. We can stomach it better. Exactly. I have been rereading Swing Time by Zadie Smith and I've really been enjoying that. Just like a great book and I feel like, you know, I 
studied in London for like six weeks. So I feel a little bit familiar with like some of the landmarks. And that's what I really like about Zadie Smith is I'm like, hey, I know that place. I know that place while reading it. Again, another buzzy book. I think I was late on the uh, trend with this one, but Uncanny Valley I read recently and I really liked that. Just a really interesting look at Silicon Valley from someone who is like not a like a tech person. Yeah. And you know what? Pretty Little Liars. I'll say it. It's good. They're fun. They're They're a lot of fun. (laughs) They also, Pretty Little Liars, all of the books are available on Audible. So if you have an Audible subscription, they're a lot of fun. Like I like to listen to them while I'm exercising just because it's like doesn't take a lot of attention, but also they're very fun. And listeners, the next episode of SSR that's coming out two weeks from today is about Pretty Little Liars. So perfect recommendation. I also would love for you to share a little bit more about your podcast, what you're working on now. I know that we've we've discussed a little bit about your sort of um, more click-specific coverage, but I'd love to hear more about what's going on now and what you're looking forward to doing maybe in the future. Yeah, so right now our main series that we're covering is the Pretty Little Liars series. Um, so what we do for the most part is that we um, will do one week Pretty Little Liars And then the next week we'll do like a listener suggested book or sometimes we'll talk about like a movie or just some kind of topic that relates to consuming media as a young woman and like how that kind of carries you over into adulthood. Um, So our episodes are released every Monday. We also have a Patreon where we do three extra episodes a month that are a little bit more off the wall. Recently, we covered the Uglies book there, which was like a highly requested book. We are big fans of Tyra Banks, and we covered her little red novel called Model (laughs) Land uh, that you absolutely should not read under any circumstances. The opposite of detransition, baby, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, genuinely. Everybody is begging you not to read it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and we we like to foster a fun community with our listeners um, and get into the things that they want to hear. So come check us out. The water's fine. Yeah, I love what you're doing, listeners. If you are not listening to Girls Like Us yet, please go ahead and check it out. Make sure you're following the podcast across social media. I feel like we sort of, we have a very similar mind between totally. our podcasts. We're frolic sorority sisters. That's what we Sophie are and I always say. Sorority sisters. <laughs> Shout out to anybody. Oh yeah, we're making, oh wait, I have a different sorority symbol, but. Oh, excuse okay. me. Oh. <laughs> I know this is the only one I've seen on, on Instagram I know, that I can like um, pair it. I, I won't name names of sororities because I don't want to offend anybody, but I was in a sorority and now I'm in a frolic sorority with you both. And it's. It's a real treat. I'm so glad that we were able to connect. I will include links to your podcast. I will include links to all the books you recommended in the show notes for this episode. All kinds of good stuff over there today, listeners. Thank you so much, Franny and Sophie, for taking the time to talk to me about the clip. Thank you. for reading this book again. I know that you read it a lot. Um, (laughs) I appreciate you jumping in again. And it's just been a lot of fun chatting with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. Thank you so much. It was a blast. Bye. 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 SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.